Welcome to BrainBeat, the podcast series of the National Academy of Neuropsychology, otherwise known as NAN. I'm Dr. Peter Arnett, past president of NAN, a professor at Penn State University, and I'll be your host today. It's a pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Michael Jaffe, who will be talking with us today about chronic pain. Dr. Jaffe comes to us via San Diego, where he ran the Department of Pain Management and was a staff physician in physical medicine rehabilitation at Kaiser Permanente for 21 years. Dr. Jaffe moved to Hawaii in 2017 and is in private practice with Hawaii Brain and Spine in Kailua. He's written a book on golf and low back pain called Play Golf Forever, and he currently serves on the Hawaii Medical Board. Welcome, Dr. Jaffe, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Peter. I really appreciate you inviting me to come and speak on your show. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, so maybe just to start at the start, what's what would be a good definition of chronic pain and how many Americans suffer from it? The modern definition of pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. You know, what I really like about that definition is that pain is a very personal and social experience and everyone experiences it differently. In our society, we have about 20% of our American population suffers from chronic pain. So upwards of 80 million people. So it sure is. So it's a a considerable problem to deal with in our society. And of course, chronic Mm -hmm. pain is is quite a bugaboo in itself that as mentioned, there's not always tissue damage to really back up why people are hurting. And that's what makes Mm -hmm. it such an interesting area of study. Well, before we get into the different types of physiological pain that people experience, I know you were going to talk about that a little bit. When you talk about 80 million people suffering from that in the U.S., how many of those people actually end up seeking out treatment for it? Well, as you can imagine, you know, Peter, uh, everyone asks their mother, their brother, their friend. (laughs) There's Mm -hmm. a lot of people uh, seeking help. I certainly would say a good majority of those individuals, at least 80%, of those are seeking some sort of form of help, uh, whether it's through the medical system or complementary medicine. You know, interesting enough, there's a very big shift right now in pain management practice where we're trying to get the burden of treatment onto more self-directed patient care. So they take more responsibility. And that's been a good thing in our field with treatments of chronic pain. Yeah, that sounds like a real positive development. What are the four types of physiological pain that people experience? Well, it's so interesting that there really are four types of pain. Of course, we feel somatic pain, and that's what people are probably most familiar with. And that's coming from our bones, our joints, our ligaments, our tendons, and muscle pain, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But then there's also visceral pain. That would be from our inner. So that would be abdominal pain. Uh, If you've ever had chest pain coming from cardiac reasons or kidney pain. So it's our our Mm -hmm. visceral organs, our innards. And that has kind of a distinct pain pattern in distinct pain pathways. The third type of pain is neuropathic pain. And that's where the pain is literally coming from the nerves themselves. Mm -hmm. The most common one people would describe is a sciatic type pain or a sciatic distribution pain, where it's actually the sciatic nerve that's hurting. And a fourth type of pain, which is really interesting, is the psychogenic pain, where the pain is actually coming from our psyches itself, from Mm -hmm. whether it's uh, emotional distress or other reasons that have wired brain into our emotional and brain centers. So yeah, that's interesting. So you can break it down into kind of those four physiological components. And then there are three other components of pain as well. And can you tell us a little bit about those? What's very interesting, of course, is that when people experience pain, 
it's not just a straightforward Cartesian, oh, you touch fire and you pull your hand away type pain, that it really has a significant effect on us, not just the physical tissue involved, but also with our emotional self and how we feel about the pain, how it makes us sad or depressed or hopeless. There's this big emotional component in the way we cope with it. And then there's the cognitive and the cognitive is changes in our brain from chronic pain that may affect the way the direction of our life goes and what we're going to do in our life. Are we going to work or in things like that? So there's this sensory portion, emotional portion, and then the cognitive portion to pain, the way it affects our brains. That's like a nice way to describe it. I want to come back to that a little bit later and ask you a little bit about maybe some cognitive behavioral coping strategies that people can use to address their pain. But moving on to some other topics, should we think about chronic pain as just chronic suffering? Would that be a better way to think about it? You know, I like to think so. Again, this 80 million people in America, it causes a tremendous amount of physical and emotional disability and suffering. And modern science is still trying to explain, you know, this so far. We haven't truly been able to grasp all of it. It's, you know, somewhere between, you know, our primordial nervous system being wound up, propagating chronic pain to kind of the Buddhist concept of life is suffering. We're still trying to figure all that out, why chronic pain has such a profound effect on us. And so when I am working with patients with chronic pain, again, keeping in mind the sensory, the emotional and cognitive component, what I often see is that it's not just the pain, but it actually truly is the suffering of the individual. It's also very important to understand, again, the person's story behind their pain. Mm -hmm. Well, I know just as somebody who's had some occasional problems with back pain, I can understand the motivation to get treatment or to get help, some relief when you do have pain. It's just sometimes it feels like you can't think about anything else. You can't even function. No, it's totally true. Yeah, it becomes completely preoccupying. I have a bit of an interesting story, if I if I may, about you know a really good example how chronic pain is suffering. I'm gonna look at a clinical example. I've got two separate patients with the same exact injury, just a grade two sprained ankle. Okay, which hurts, right? Right. Case one would be let's say a lady in her 40s who's having a bit of a rough go in life. She has had a prior back surgery that failed to control low back pain. She happens to be divorced. She's raising a teenage girl on her own. She works really hard, but doesn't get along well with her boss at work and is having financial stressors from being underemployed. She's got a history of some physical abuse as a child that led to depression and anxiety. She is going to process pain much differently than, let's say, case two would be a triathlete who, let's say, only works part-time, has a very supportive wife and family, well-adjusted kids, knows he's going to be involved in a foot race in six weeks, and is just going to keep training for it via other means. So it's understandable that these two individuals may interpret their injuries, even though the injury is the same, at very different ends of the pain spectrum. Mm-hmm. It seems like in the former case of the woman in her 40s, it seems like the outcomes would very likely be worse in her case because of the, you know, the comorbid anxiety, depression, and some other things that are going on in her life. Would that be a fair statement in that case? Peter, Peter that's exactly right. Her processing of pain kind of develops into you know, a pain experience, pain catastrophizing, pain-related fear avoidance activity, 
which leads to disuse of her body and depression and disability. And you can see how it really turns into a vicious cycle. Right. Whereas the triathlete says, you know what? I'm just going to get better. There's no fear. I'm going to keep moving. And lo and behold, the recovery within the number of weeks. Mm-hmm. So just given the complexities of the case of the woman that you mentioned, where would you begin in terms of trying to help a person like that? It just seems like there would be so many avenues of treatment that you could pursue. But as a, an experienced clinician who's treated people with chronic pain for years, where would you begin? Such a great question. And I think a good way to start the answer is this is someone that you'd be really cautious about using opiate therapy on mm-hmm. because you can see there could be quick chemical coping adaptive behavior. Right because of the fear and the anxiety associated with the pain. So I think, first of all, is you don't want to get aggressive with opiates right off the get-go with someone like this. The second thing is to give these individuals who really do have a lot of fear about the pain never going away, giving them a lot of positive affirmations and positive information that they're going to get better, empower them to begin their own self-care through motion and actually not rest, kind of an active recovery model. Okay, so I think through a lot of good education, a lot of good motion, proper hands-on therapy and other non-opiate therapies and trying to avoid kind of the slippery slope of opiate use would be the way to approach this individual. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of brings up the elephant in the room, I think, and that is the role of opiates in treating chronic pain. I would think that in some ways it's sort of understandable how this could have happened because I would imagine as a, you know, as a physician trying to treat chronic pain, the the thing that you want to do with your patient is to provide as immediate relief as you possibly can. And that's something opiates can do. But, you know, so I could see how that could result in abuse of that. How do you address that in treatment as somebody who, you know, addresses this from multiple different angles? And secondly, how did opiate use in America get so out of control? Those are really great questions. And it's really become a big, huge problem in our society. As you probably know, in last year, over 75,000 people died in this country just from opiate overdose. The reason for opiates being overused is multifactorial, but ultimately it's the physicians that have the pen who are writing the prescriptions. And it's really up to the doctors to kind of rein in the liberal writing of opiates They work really good for acute pain. You have a fracture, you go to the ER, whatever, works great. But the studies for the use of opiates for chronic pain are very lacking and really just modest benefit at best. Maybe 20% helps with chronic pain using these high-dose opiates. And whereas we used to think that opiate substance use disorder was a small percentage of people we started on opiate therapy. We now know that opiate use disorder affects about 25% of people we start on opiates. Just a huge percentage and and something we really need to be judicious about when writing for these powerful uh, and potentially dangerous medications. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, there was a really interesting article, Peter, last month looking at opiate prescribing practices in America for post-surgical patients. And I thought it summed up things nicely because it it showed that in the United States, uh, whenever you leave a hospital from a surgery or even an outpatient surgical center, that 95% of patients leave that surgery with an opiate prescription, 95%. That's amazing. When you look at at Europe and Asia and South America, it's 5% of patients post-operative leaving with an opiate prescription. 
right then and there, you can map out where this problem comes yeah, from. Yeah, you can see, but but like, why are the prescribing practices so different among these different countries? Like, how did that happen where it became so skewed in this country relative to maybe some of these other countries that you mentioned? And maybe you don't have a great answer. Maybe nobody knows the answer, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. I had the wonderful opportunity of spending a sabbatical for four months in Singapore and kind of learned mm-hmm. firsthand that when patients are discharged from surgery, the surgeons sit down with them and say, you know what, you're going to hurt for a few days and then it's going to get better. So there's a lot of education and they were given Tylenol and they were given non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications and right. therapy and ice and heat. So they just really focused on A, non-opiate therapies and B, kind of just letting the patients know it's okay to hurt. It's right. going to hurt and it's mm-hmm. going to get better. Whereas in America, I think our expectations are, I don't want to feel any pain. So, you know, right. make it so. Mm-hmm. I think it has more to do with our attitudes about pain right. than it has to about anything. Well, yeah, it's really interesting just kind of setting that expectancy for recovery. It sort of reminds me a little bit about how concussions are best managed in this country, where you have some psychoeducation and you kind of set an expectancy that you're not going to get better right away, but you probably will in two or three weeks. And that can be very therapeutic. And I could imagine the same thing applying to chronic pain. This just whole idea of expectancy effects playing a really powerful role. And, and uh, you know, the healthcare provider playing a big role in setting that in the first place. Yeah, Peter, you know, what we really need to do, all of us, is just spend more time sitting down and talking to our patients. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah, makes sense. So what are the best treatments for chronic pain? If we're going to kind of veer away from you know, relying so much on opiates, then what can we do to best treat chronic pain? There's, of course, a lot of research going on, bench science, looking at all the pain pathways. They're so complicated. And we really find no matter what we think should work from a biochemical path, uh, way with bench science, it finds out it's just a lot more complicated than that. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Our current thought process, we know that people with chronic pain, even though it may be coming, let's say, from knee arthritis, At some point, it gets burnt into the nervous system and to the spinal cord level, and then eventually gets hardwired into our adaptive brains centrally. So when we do approach patients with chronic pain, I think it's very important to best treat it through A, the target organ, see what we can do about treating the knee that has arthritis, tissue that may be inflamed. So we want to treat things locally at the tissue level. Then we need to focus at the spinal cord level where our wide dynamic range neurons and spinal pathways get wound up a bit. And so we want to kind of downregulate some of the neurochemicals that transmit pain at the spinal cord level. Mm -hmm. And then finally, because our brains get wound up from and hardwired with central pain, we need to work on the brain level Mm -hmm. to downregulate, in essence, turn the volume down. We do that a lot with cognitive behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. relaxation response therapy, patient education. And as you know, a lot of mindfulness and positive thinking seems to go a very long way of kind of quieting the brain down. So Mm -hmm. it does interpret the pain so severely. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. I was going to ask you about that. So I know that can be pretty effective in treating chronic pain. How long does it take most people to benefit from say, a mindfulness-type therapy or cognitive behavioral strategies in coping with chronic pain? Does the person have to think about doing this for a year? Or you know, what's the typical progression of things in treating the typical chronic pain person you might see in your practice? 
usually my patients, they start to notice a difference within the first two weeks. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can put a little bit of a dent in it that, hey, we're, we're heading in the right direction within two weeks. Though I usually find to kind of really build in these thought patterns or movement patterns, it takes a good three months to really have more of a sustained benefit. So where that you don't have to spend so much cognitive time really focused on it, that it actually mm-hmm. starts downregulating on its own. So I'd say I'd like to see good change within three months. Certainly within six months, we like to see a, hopefully about a 90% of where we're going to get with this is debated. And do you find the outcomes are pretty good for this kind of approach, like either a cognitive behavioral therapy approach or relatedly mindfulness and, and treating chronic pain? The current studies are showing that the cognitive behavioral approach for chronic pain is literally twice as good as any medication. So we know it's a very, very powerful tool to use. I think it takes a lot of uh, self-management and work on the patient's part. And I think that's the more challenging is to keep our patients on it because Mm -hmm. to have been on chronic opiate therapies and uh, had chronic pain for a long time, kind of lose a little bit of their self-care ideals. They become more passive, I would imagine, in terms of just approaching these things. Indeed, indeed. So to further answer the behavioral coping strategies, I kind of like to break it down into three things. I like, A, to distract the mind that's feeling the pain. And, you know, patients can sit at home and and feel worried about their pain and and not be active members of society, or I can keep them working. And, you know, you can work and be in pain or stay at home and not work and be in pain. And and the people that stay productive members of society and keep working tend to do better. The Mm -hmm. patients that go on disability and sit home, they're not as busy. And so, you know what? They focus more on their pain. Yeah, it makes sense. Keeping people distracted with work is quite helpful. Mm -hmm. Number two is that relaxation response that our primordial lizard brain, that amygdala, Mm -hmm. that kind of fight or flight portion of our brain was set up to look for a rattling in the bushes so we would be alerted to run away. Well, as you know, Peter, the bushes are rattling all the time for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. And so trying to kind of wind down that response through relaxation practices and meditation and breathing can be very, very helpful. And then lastly, I really believe in the power of positive thinking that even though our brains create our minds, our minds create our brains. So we can train our brains to be more positive and to feel less pain through positive thinking mechanisms, which includes, of course, eating well and exercise and getting good sleep and all those health hygiene stuff that has been shown to be advantageous for the human body. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty complete approach. And again, it's good to know that using these kinds of approaches is twice as effective as using something like opiates or medications and treating chronic pain. So that's good to hear. Do you have any final thoughts for us? Any uh, final words of wisdom regarding chronic pain before we end? You know, I think the important things would be one is that, you know, everyone's pain, no matter where it's generated from, is real. And we need to treat our patients and our family and friends with empathy. It really goes a long way. And again, learning that pain is part of a person's story who is suffering from it and kind of understanding perhaps their background, where they're coming from, again, helps us develop that empathy so that we realize that pain is not just a numeric pain scale, but it's a part of the person's story. Mm -hmm. And I think if we approach that and try to not cover up our pain with just opiates and Mm -hmm. try to work with our pain using more self-help and self directed care that will be a lot more successful 
in this country and controlling the chronic pain. Well, thanks, Michael. That seems like a really good, very positive way to end things up on this important topic. And really appreciate you joining us today to help with the NAN podcast series. And that's going to be really something very interesting, I think, for our listeners to hear more about. So thank you. Peter, thank you so much for inviting me to talk today. It was a real treat. Thank you. This podcast series is sponsored by the NAN Foundation, which can be contacted through our website, nanfoundation.org. The NAN Foundation relies on donations, so please see the website for more information. Follow our BrainBeat podcast on Twitter, at BrainBeatPod. 